0: Welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with James Shorten. And here he's going further into the Joseph narrative discussing Genesis chapter 37 verses 12 through 24 where Joseph is attacked. As always, do check out those show notes for some helpful articles that we released this week, as well as a link to our YouTube channel and to our other social networks. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 37, verses 12 through 24.
1: We're back in Genesis chapter 37, and we come now to the last three parts of this narrative i pointed out to you last time there's a shadow of the creation week in this chapter the fourth thing in the chapter is the dream about the sun moon and stars and the third thing is the grains which are the third day and the seventh section has a great many parallels to genesis chapter two and three which we'll look at when we get to it but we come out of the fifth section which is verses 12 to 14 and there's no obvious link to the fifth day of creation here but it is the fifth event in the story the first event was that Joseph was in charge of the younger sons and brought a bad report an evil report about them to their father the second event in the narrative was that Israel God's representative had Chosen Joseph above all of his sons, considered him a son of an old age, and had given him a firmament, placed a firmament between Joseph and the other sons in the form of a royal tunic, and gave him authority over them. And then the third event was the dream about the sheaves, and the fourth event is the dream about the sun, moon, and stars. Now verses 12 to 14, and I'll read from Fox just for fun. And his brothers went to tend their father's sheep in Shechem. And Israel said to Yosef, Are not your brothers tending sheep in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Behold me. Literally. Really means something like, I'm ready to go. I'm at your disposal. Here I am. I'm right Here. And he said to him, Come, pray, look into the well-being of your brothers and into the well-being of the sheep, and bring me back word. So he sent him out from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. First of all, following our notes, note that Joseph is sent by Israel. He is Israel's representative, not sent by Jacob. The distinction in the words is Jacob refers to the individual man, Israel refers to the man as he is God's representative in charge of this community of people. And what that sets up for us here, of course, is that what we've already seen, but now explicitly here in the narrative, the attack upon Joseph is an attack upon Israel, who is God's representative. So the narrator, the writer of this passage, whoever actually wrote Genesis or wrote this part of it, perhaps Joseph himself, wants us to understand that what is going to happen is not just an attack on Joseph, but it's an attack on Israel, whom Joseph represented. And since Israel is God's representative, it's an attack on God. And of course, we could say that anyway, but the text highlights it for us. Then we read that they're pasturing in Shechem. I've got down here many commentators ask how this could be since they had earlier massacred the men of Shechem and are now hated by the Canaanites in this area. They had to move away from Shechem. So how can they be going back up there to pasture sheep? But, of course, we have seen that these stories are not in chronological order but in thematic order. I mean, they're in roughly chronological order, but when we get Done with the Jacob narrative and we start the Joseph narrative, we drop back in time to start up again. And both narratives are in chronological order within themselves. Well, we have not massacred the men of Shechem yet. There's no problem with going up to the city of Salem, the city of Shechem. Also, I've got down here that the paragraph is roughly chiastic. You'll notice in verse 12, His brothers went to tend their father's sheep in Shechem. And at the end it says, He sent him out from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And then Israel sends Joseph and says, Come, I'll send you to him. And at the center Joseph says, I'm ready, I'm ready to go. And he says to him, Okay, I'm going to send you to see him. Go get him. So go find out about him and report back to me. So at the center is Joseph's willing obedience to his father. The the chiastic form does the service to us of, pointing something in the middle and here it's joseph saying here i am i'm ready to go it's like rebecca when they said to her you want to go with this man she said yep let's go don't you want to wait around for a while and say goodbye to all your friends nope i'm ready to go she says remember that way back at the beginning of this series well the same kind of thing here is alacrity of obedience on the part of joseph is showing us how different he is from the brothers they have things to conceal from their father, Joseph is very ready to obey and do what his father says. Another thing the commentators spend some time on is the distance here. The distance from Hebron to Shechem is about 50 miles. You're moving a bunch of sheep and goats too, I imagine. You're going many days' journey. Then they go on to Dothan, which is another 13 or 15 miles farther on. So they are quite some distance from Hebron people say well why would they be pasturing so far away and there's no direct answer at least nobody seemed to have one there may be some implication or maybe so what it doesn't matter they just got so many sheep that they go to a place where there's lots of land the fact that there are good pasture lands in this area would indicate why they move to the Shechem area later on after Joseph disappears so if we put these stories in chronological order the fact that they're already going up to the Shechem area to pasture would indicate why they eventually moved there and relocate there. But I think the more important thing is, just to get a picture of what's going on, that distance means they've been gone for a while. They aren't pasturing the sheep one day's journey away to where people could go back and forth and see what's going on. They are a week away. And so it's understandable that Jacob would want to check on them. Let's assume that he hasn't heard anything for a couple of months. And so he sends Joseph out just to check on things, see how things are going, report back to him. Another question that the commentators raise is, didn't Jacob realize how much the brothers hated Joseph? Apparently not. You would think that if he had, he would not have sent him off. So we are told that the brothers hated Joseph. And we are told that they couldn't speak peaceably to him, at least on occasion. We're not told that Jacob was aware of it. Or if he knew that they were fussing about it, we're not told that he had an awareness of how deep the hatred was going. So we can set those reservations aside. Jacob sends Joseph assuming that everything is pretty much okay. Finally, the whole business about Shechem here. Since he doesn't even go to Shechem, he goes to Dothan. The text could easily say, your brothers are tending sheep, why don't you go to them? So he left Hebron and went to his brothers and not say anything about the city of Shechem. But since Shechem is emphasized here, even though that's not where we're going to go, we're going to go to Dothan instead, the reason has to be theological and thematic, why it's emphasized, why it comes up at all. And we know that Dinah is going to be attacked at Shechem later on and that the brothers will murder the men of Shechem. And I think that the narrator knows that we already know that. See, the narrator of Genesis, the Holy Spirit, has already told us that story. Even though it hasn't happened yet in time, we already know it's going to happen. And we already know something about it. Well, parallels are set up by that, by saying... Joseph is going to Shechem. He's going to the area of Shechem. And look what happens to him. He gets almost killed. He gets attacked. So Joseph is like Dinah, the helpless younger sibling. And the brothers are like the unconverted idolaters of Shechem. Just as Dinah was attacked, so Joseph is attacked. The difference is that the men of Shechem repented and converted and said, We're sorry for what we did to your daughter. We want to marry her. And you remember the story. Then they're massacred for it. And it takes a long time for the brothers to repent for what they did to Joseph. But remember what happens when they do repent. They're afraid Joseph will do the same thing to them. He'll forgive them and everything will be okay. But once Jacob dies, they say, oh, you're going to put us to death now? You're going to do to us what we did to the men of Shechem? They repented. And we said, oh, we accept your repentance. Here, you can marry Dinah. And then you got to be circumcised. And then we massacred them. Are you going to do that to us? They're afraid. So the parallels sort of just add a little color into this story here. These brothers are going to have done to them what they did to others. They're going to have to repent for attacking Joseph, just as the men of Shechem had to repent for attacking Dinah, and then they have to worry, will Joseph deal with us the way we dealt with the men of Shechem? Of course, he doesn't. But I think that three times the word Shechem appears in this paragraph, and it doesn't need to be here at all. And so attention's being called to it. And I think it's setting up these parallels. Well, Then we come to the sixth incident in the text. The sixth day, so to speak, where we encounter a man. So maybe the fact that there is a man here has something to do with the sixth day. Maybe the flock of sheep, the idea of a host of things, a swarm of things, links with the fifth paragraph here. I don't know. We don't have to have everything Match to see that there are seven sections here. Joseph meets a man. And this is always one of those curious things. What is going on here? Why is this here? Who cares? Verses 15 to 17. And a man came upon him. Behold, he was roaming in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What do you seek? And he said, I seek my brothers. Pray tell me where they are tending sheep. And the man said, they have moved on from here. Indeed, I heard them say, Let us go to Dotan, or Dotian." Yosef went after his brothers and came upon them in Dotan. Spelled two different ways here Dotayan and Dotan. It's the same place. We'll get to what it is in a minute. Well, to understand this incident, I think we have to go back to the parallel between Jacob's Exodus. And the exodus of Israel later on. And we did this several months ago. It's way back in your notes somewhere. And I listed about 40 events in series that are parallel between Jacob's life and what happens to the nation of Israel later on. But here, I've given you the first part of it so that you can remember it. When Jacob leaves home, that's the beginning of his exodus event. He leaves home, goes down into a strange place to look for a wife. Joseph leaves home to look for his brothers. Jacob is sent off to look for a wife. Joseph is sent off to look for his brothers. The Lord, Yahweh, meets Jacob at Bethel, and a man meets Joseph on the way. Those are the two parallels here. Jacob is well received for a month in the house of Laban. Joseph prospers in Potiphar's house. Then Jacob is reduced to servitude. We saw that. You're going to have to work for me. You're not a member of the family anymore. Joseph is going to be cast into prison. Jacob prospers as a hired man. and Joseph is elevated over Egypt, but under Pharaoh. Jacob multiplies children and flocks. Hebrews multiply in Egypt. And then the stories continue. God enables Jacob to spoil Laban's flocks. He gets most of his flocks. The Hebrews spoil the Egyptians. God appears to jacob and says you better leave god appears to moses and the israelites and says you better leave they go they're pursued they get to the red sea all these different things happen in parallel and you've got that in your notes at any rate the point is this encounter with the man does fit here we don't know if it's really a man or not there's no indication here or anywhere else as to whether this is just some ordinary person Or an apparition, a theophany. I don't know why it would be a theophany. It parallels the theophanic encounter at Bethel that Jacob had. But you would expect it to just be some guy that he runs into and gives him this information. Now, there are some other things here that you might not catch. This business of roaming, roaming in the field. This word is used, if you look it up, in Hebrew... It's used for wandering astray or sinning or falling into error throughout the Bible. But it's only used three times in Genesis, and in Genesis it doesn't have that meaning. And it doesn't, although it's usually used in contexts where you're talking about wandering astray or wandering from the true way, the word itself doesn't carry that freight. It just means you're wandering somewhere. You're roaming around. Just as in English we could say, he wandered... And then we could say he wandered astray, committed a sin, or to say he was out wandering around. It wouldn't carry any negative connotations. Well, it's appeared twice in Genesis already in parallel situations. In chapter 20, verse 13, this is the only three times it appears in Genesis. So, again, a particular nuance of meaning is being set up by its previous uses. This is when Abraham is speaking to Abimelech. Abimelech comes to him and says, What's going on here? You said this woman was your sister, so I grabbed her and put her in my harem. And it turns out she's your wife and God has threatened me. And in verse 11, Abraham said, this is chapter 20, I said to myself, Surely there is no fear of God in this place. They will kill me on account of my wife. But then again, she is truly my sister, my father's daughter, though she's not my mother's daughter. And she became my wife. Now, it was when the power of God caused me to roam from my father's house. See, roam from my father's house. I said to her, let this faithfulness be what you do to me in every place we come say of me, he's my brother. Well, the first time that happened was when they went down to Egypt. So, in the first place, God is guiding the roaming of Abraham. God tells Abraham to roam from home, but not to roam to Rome to Rome, down into the land of Canaan, and eventually they roam to Egypt. And that's implied here. Well, we got one other instance of roaming, almost immediately, so that there is a very close parallel in the very next chapter. Really, pretty much the very next story. We have the birth of Isaac, and then we have driving out Hagar, and when Hagar is driven out, she roams, and she goes down to Egypt. And in verse 14, of chapter 21, Abraham started early in the morning and he took some bread and a skin of water and he gave them to Hagar, placing them on her shoulder together with the child and sent her away. Remember when the Hebrews come out of Egypt later on it says they carried the bread on their shoulders. So you got parallels here. He sent her away and she went off and roamed in the wilderness of Beersheba. And then God appears to him and says, I'll be with you. Don't worry about it. And it says God was with him. And it says his mother took him a wife from the land of Egypt in verse 21. So roaming can be a place that God sends you to do to go to another place. Roaming is a place where you can meet God. These are things that have happened so far. So that explains something of what's going on here. I have to ask, and I think we're supposed to ask, why is this information given here? Jacob sends Joseph out. He came to Shechem. He met a man and he asked the man, where are my brothers? And the man says, they've gone to Dothan. But no, it says a man came on him and he was roaming in the field. Now, we can imagine what's happening. He's got to Shechem and he's roaming out in the area there looking around where his brothers might be. But a man encounters him just as the Lord encountered Hagar and sends him on where he's supposed to be. So these parallels indicate that the word roaming or wandering is being used here in a somewhat theological sense. A person is being directed by God but is not aware of it. And God sends somebody to encounter him and to send him on. So it's not just a little piece of interesting information here like you would stick in a movie or a short story to fill space. It's important. It's equivalent to encountering God when you're roaming as Hagar did or as Jacob did when he left and was going to his place of bondage. Jacob is going to Patan Aram, but that's equivalent to going to Egypt. That's the place where he'll be reduced into slavery for a while. Finally, this word Dothan here, what does it mean? I can't really tell. It's contracted from Dothian which seems to mean double cistern or two cisterns. problem is the word for cistern in Hebrew is not dot or dot. In fact, the word dot doesn't seem to be a Hebrew word at all. It shows up in the book of Daniel as a Chaldean loan word meaning law, but that's not what it would mean here. But some of the Bible dictionaries say it means two cisterns. Well, If it does, and for all I know, that's absolutely secure. Maybe it's just not a Hebrew word. I just could not find out. There wasn't enough information. Nobody said, well, this isn't Hebrew. This is Ugaritic or something. It means cistern. I don't know. Let's assume it does. Because there is reference to the cisterns. Obviously, that's where Joseph is put. And in fact, we know there's more than one. Verse 20, it says, let's cast him into one of these cisterns. So that seems to be the meaning of it and double cistern or two cisterns. We'll just assume that there are two pits there. And now we come to the climax of this narrative, to the seventh day, so to speak, the fall of man, the rebellion in the garden, uh, seizing the forbidden fruit, and that's verses 18 to 35. And we can't get through all of this today, but let me just read it, and we'll start looking at some of the themes. Verse 18. I'll start at the end of verse 17. Yosef went after his brothers and came upon them in Dothan, Dothayan, and they saw him from afar. And before he had gotten near them, they plotted cunningly against him to put him to death, to cause his death. And they said, Each man to his brothers, Here comes that lord of dreams. That's literally what it says, lord of dreams. So now come, let us kill him and cast him into one of these cisterns and say, An ill-tempered beast has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. And when Reuven heard it, he tried to rescue him from their hand, and he said, Let us not take his life. And Reuven said to them, Do not shed blood. Cast him into this cistern that is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, in order that he might save him from their hand to return him to his fathers. And so it was, when Yosef came to his brothers, that they stripped Yosef of his coat, the ornamented tunic that he had on, the full-length tunic, And took him and cast him into the pit, cistern. And now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and saw. And there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels carrying balm, balsam, and ladanum, Traveling to take them down to Egypt. Now Yehudah said to his brothers. What gain is there if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, but let not our hand be upon him, for he was our brother, our flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Meanwhile, some Midianite men, merchants, passed by. So they hauled up Yosef from the pit and sold Yosef to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver, and they brought Yosef to Egypt. And Reuven returned to the pit, and behold, Yosef was no more in the pit, cistern. He rent his garments and returned to his brothers and said, The child is no more, and I, where am I to go? They took Yosef's coat, and they slew a hairy goat and dipped the coat in the blood. And they had the full-length tunic sent out and had it brought to their father. And they said, We found this. Pray recognize whether it is your son's tunic or not. And he recognized it and said, My son's tunic. And the ill-tempered beast has devoured him. Yosef is torn, torn to pieces. Yaakov rent his garments, he put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and daughters, maybe daughters-in-law, arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, No, I will go down to my son in mourning to Sheol. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the midianites actually it's not Midianites here, it's midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar. Pharaoh's court official chief of the guard now there are some themes to notice here before we even look at the structure notice for instance that the brothers sit down to eat bread after they throw Joseph into the pit as we saw way back when we started the story of Joseph bread is a major theme here we've already had sheaves of grain bowing down now we have bread again We have to ask, why on earth are we told this? Is it just to show us how callous these guys are? that They've got Joseph down in the pits, and now they're hungry and they're going to have a meal. No, this information is given to us because bread is a central theme, and because Joseph is the one who's going to provide bread for them later on. In a sense, the death of Joseph provides bread for the brothers. And Joseph's going down to Egypt is a form of death, but that makes life for the rest of them. And here being thrown into the pit is a form of death and that is associated with them getting to have bread. Now, they don't deserve to have this bread now, but they have it anyway. This just begins to anticipate something that comes up later on in the story in much more detail. So that's one thing to notice. The second thing to notice is that Midianites convey Joseph to Egypt. And when Moses leaves Egypt, he dwells with Midianites. Uh, Jethro is a Midianite. And then when all the Israelites come up out of Egypt later on, they encounter Jethro and the Midianites. Then later on they encounter some bad Midianites under Balaam. So Midianites take you down to Egypt and you encounter them coming back up. Interesting connection of themes there. A little bit more we'll say about it as we go. And then notice the garment theme here. I didn't count up the number of times tunic and coat are used here i'll try to remember to do that before next week but three sets of garments are ruined joseph's garments are ruined reuben's garments are ruined and jacob's are ruined and garments have to do with glory and the glory of israel is completely ruined and killed here the firstborn son who is so to speak the representative of the family he tears his the father tears his and of course joseph's is torn And we can even see a little hint of the Trinity here in that the father, the firstborn son, Reuben, and then the spirit who was sent by the father would be equivalent to Joseph. And Joseph is linked to the Holy Spirit later on by Pharaoh. It's a complete ruining of the honor and glory that they have signified by their garments. And these are all good garments. They're not just tearing their underwear when they do this. This is whatever expensive garment they have and since clothes were handmade in the ancient world garments were expensive you tear them you're doing significant damage so the garment theme is important here now i've given you a chiastic structure and the chiastic structure is interesting because it puts judah and his plot at the center of the story at the absolute center is his statement oh let's sell him to the ishmaelites And then on either side of that, in verses 26 and 27, he says, Let's not kill our brother. What gain is there if we kill our brother? Let not our hand be on him. And then the beginning of that section G is Judah speaks to his brothers, and then Judah is heard by his brothers. The story begins with him plotting to kill Joseph, and then it ends with them showing that Joseph has been killed, and Jacob believing it. But interestingly enough, at the beginning of the narrative, they say, let's kill him and throw him into a pit and say, a beast has devoured him. Well, matching that is exactly what they do. They don't kill him, but they dip his tunic in the blood of a beast, a hairy beast. So if you look at it, it's structured out quite well. They strip Joseph's garment off. That is matched D' prime, with Reuben tearing his garment. There's some other things to notice here. Again, the commentators say, hmm, Reuben has been shown to be a bad guy because he slept with Jacob's concubine. No, that hadn't happened yet. That's 10, 15 years off in the future. Reuben is the responsible firstborn older brother at this point in his biography. So we shouldn't be so surprised that he acts responsibly to an extent. But Judah is the main actor here and he's the one who commits the sin. Of course, murdering the brother would be a capital offense, but man-stealing and enslavement is also a capital offense. So it's this very serious sin, and Judah has to repent later on. As I pointed out to you when we introduced this, the next chapter of this narrative is all about Judah and his marriage, and then when we go on down, it's Judah who offers to give his life for Benjamin, and Judah is as important in this story as Joseph is. It's not just the story of Joseph, it's the story of Joseph and Judah. Another thing that you see from the Chiasic structure, if you look at F and F prime, the Ishmaelites are carrying spices down to Egypt, and what's parallel to that is that they brought Joseph to Egypt. Uh, That's not an accident. In fact, these spices here, except for the balm of Gilead, the other two, are nowhere else mentioned in the Bible except one other place also in Genesis, which I'll show you when we get to it. In other words, there is a deliberate parallel between these spices going down to Egypt and Joseph going down to Egypt. These are spices used in medicine for healing. And we speak of the balm of Gilead. Everybody knows that's medicinal. The other two are as well. So the idea of Joseph as being someone who will heal is implied here. And you see it in the structure. You wouldn't have to have the chiastic structure. You could think to yourself, oh, you know, the Ishmaelites are carrying spices down to Egypt, healing medicine, and they're also carrying Joseph down to Egypt. And that's parallel. You could get that, but you wouldn't know for sure if you're making that up or not. Maybe that's a parallel that's intended. Maybe it's not a parallel that's intended. Well, the chiastic structure tells you that is a parallel that is intended. The Holy Spirit intends for us to make that parallel because He puts them together in the structure of the narrative. And then selling is at the center. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Later on, the brothers are going to come to buy from Joseph. The buying and selling thing becomes real important in this narrative. And so there's an irony here. They're going to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. Later on, they're going to have to come and buy stuff from him. So that also, just some things that come from the very structure of the narrative, themes that are highlighted that become important later on in the narrative well if we can read some of this and then we'll stop verse 18 they saw him from afar how they know who it was him well from his garments See, we know that he's wearing this robe his full length tunic and they recognize him from it and before he got near they plotted cunningly crafty plot it's all one word in hebrew Against him to cause his death. And they said each to his brother, hey look, here comes that Lord of dreams, the Baal of dreams. Of course, Baal means Lord or husband. They use it sarcastically, but it's true of course. Joseph is the Lord of dreams. In two senses, in the dreams, he's the Lord. He's the one they're going to bow down to. And then also, he is the Lord of dreams in that he's a master of them. He knows how to interpret them. That's his gift. So, they're using it sarcastically, but it's also literally true. That's who Joseph is. They recognize him rightly, and they kill him for what he is. There's no mistake here. Now, it says in verse 20, Come now, let us kill him and cast him into one of these cisterns, and say, An evil beast has devoured him. Some of the commentators say, Well, Joseph brought an evil report. It's the same word here. Evil beast. So, maybe... There's at least some link of theme here. They want to get evil with him. He brought an evil report. We'll kill him with an evil beast. It says let's kill him and then throw him into the cistern. So being thrown into the cistern is directly associated with death. I mean, we can figure that out. Dust thou art, and to dust you will return. So when somebody goes down into the ground in the Bible, that's a symbol of death. When Jeremiah is lowered down into a pit, into the mud, that's death because you're returning to the dust. Any time that happens in the Bible, it's going down into death. Just as going up on a mountain or a high place or a rooftop or an upper room has to do with ascension, going down into the ground, being in the dust, or lying down into the ground, or throwing dust on your head or ashes on your head, putting dust on yourself has to do with death. So you don't need to see it, but it's just made explicit here in the way this is written. Let's kill him and put him into a pit so that the two things are directly associated. And then we get to the point that Harold was hinting at earlier, and that's Reuben's action here. And we'll stop after looking at that. When Reuben heard it, he tried to rescue him out of their hand, and he said, don't take his life. See, he's the older brother. He's the firstborn. He can tell them what to do. He tells them, Don't kill him. Don't shed his blood. Put him into this cistern that's in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. They violate that. They don't kill him. They obey that part, but they do put a hand on him. Eve said, we're not supposed to eat it. We're not supposed to touch it. Reuben says, don't kill him. Don't touch him. In order that he might save him from their hand to return him to the Father. Well, he tells them, don't eat it and don't touch it. Don't kill him. And don't lay a hand on him. Then he departs. We're not told that he departs, but he returns later on. So, just like the Lord in Genesis 2. He gives this command. He leaves. When the Lord comes back, they have sinned. When Reuben comes back, they have torn the fruit off the tree of knowledge and brought them all under judgment. And then they have to make a garment to cover themselves with.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.